Let's open up to Revelation 14. Again, we're still in verse 8. This second angelic messenger in a snapshot of judgment we see characterizing the whole flavor of what's going on here toward the end of Daniel's 70th week. We have an announcement of the fall of Babylon. A general announcement of the judgment as we go later into Revelation 17 and 18 we get a detailed description of what that judgment looks like. The judgment of the world system. God's wrath poured upon poured out upon both its political or commercial and its religious arms. Babylon here in Revelation is just a microcosmic picture or it's the culminating picture of a world system that began way back in the beginning when man decided to turn his back on God. When man decided to do his own thing. It started with Cain who thought he could worship God on his own terms and then he went out from the presence of the Lord and turned and, 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 and founded the worship of man. Built a city, named it after his son. That spirit of the world system of Babel continued after the flood and uh, um, men turned away from the Lord and decided to build a tower unto heaven uh, in the days of Nimrod. And uh, God scattered them across the face of the earth and they carried that spirit with them in languages and cultures. And we see it today coming back together. The unity that men sought at Babel is being sought again today. Babylon is more than just a literal city in Revelation. It's obvious. It's a spirit. It's the spirit of this age. And it's globalism. It's the very spirit that's trying to take down our country right now. It's the very spirit that's sowing so much chaos and discord in our country that our honorable governing officials can't even govern. It's a judgment from God. Confusion of face is a judgment from God. Even Antichrist himself, the Bible says, is the rod of God's indignation. The chaos and the confusion that's upon our country today because of this world system is judgment upon a people that turned its back upon God. It's kind of like the Holocaust. Everybody wants to talk about what is the Holocaust, what caused it. If you want to sum up the Holocaust against the Jews under Nazi Germany, it was supernatural rage authorized by God and carried out by Satan. What we're seeing here in America today are the beginnings of supernatural rage authorized by God and carried out by the spirit of Antichrist. Nothing new under the sun. We should be learning from these testimonies in Scriptures, not turning a blind eye to them. Remember last week, Paul talked about these things. Everything that's written was written to warn us. And it's also written to teach us and give us hope when we see the positive examples of faithfulness amidst a corrupt world system. So we began tracing this world system, starting with Adam, all the way down to the flood, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then last week we showed how it endured after the flood and raised its head at Babel. And we began to trace the faithful witness of God amidst this corruption from Noah's son, Shem, down toward Abraham. So we were looking at the genealogy after the flood, just as we had looked at the one before the flood, to show and illustrate that God, despite the corruption of mankind, always reserves unto Himself a faithful witness. And what He did through the genealogies down to Abraham was all for a purpose. Man was scattered, and man became a sea of nations. A sea of nations that turned away from God after the flood. 
And God decided to do a new thing. He had purposed from the beginning of the world. Instead of preserving a witness through a line, He would preserve it by raising up a nation amongst a sea of nations. Those things are integral to our understanding of the Scriptures. Both that which was written to Jew and that which is written to us, the church. This is all part of a plan. And so that's why it's important to trace these. We're going to continue doing that today. We got into uh, the line of Shem after the flood. We talked about Shem, Ham, and Japheth, where Nimrod came from, where that spirit of Babylon came from that eventually um, has culminated today. A real good picture of the spirit of Babylon today has been for quite some time is the Roman Catholic Church. That's Babylon. It's not the church that Jesus Christ founded. Um, but we're going to continue down that line today. But before I do, let me just say that in these genealogies that record the faithfulness of God's witness, that record the examples of those who believed upon the Lord, there were undoubtedly mothers who nurtured sons. And as a result of that nurturing, God's witness continued. We talk about Noah, but Noah had a wife. Noah had a wife that believed what God told her husband and stood by him as a preacher of righteousness for 120 years when no one else listened. She must have done something to nurture her children so that they too stood by their father. You had mothers after the flood. We talk about Abraham. Abraham's father was an idol worshiper according to Joshua. That line began to be compromised with father, but Abraham was a man of faith. There must have been a mother somewhere who sowed something into him. Sarah was a woman of faith. She may have laughed when God told her she was going to have a son, but she ultimately believed him. And that was seen by her casting out the bondwoman and, and uh, believing that her son was a child of promise and raising and nurturing him. Isaac was grieved when his mother Sarah died. He was grieved because she was special to him and had nurtured him to, to fear God. Rebecca was a mother who cared about her children um, having godly wives and was sorrowful when one of them turned away. So there's godly mothers throughout this genealogy. You know, today we use this terminology all the time. I'm always amazed at the English language because it is the international language of the end times, no question. But um, we use words as if they're synonyms, as if they mean the exact same thing, and they really don't. When you have a word, you have... A denotation, which is a literal dictionary meaning, but every word also has a connotation. We've talked about that in terms of interpreting the Scriptures. Connotation is the feeling or the emotion of the word that uh, is conjured up when it's spoken. And there may be, the word mom and mother may have the same dictionary meaning, but it's not the same connotation. A mom, anybody can be a mom. Anybody can be a progenitor that produces offspring. The word mom connotes progenation, bearing children. Anybody can do that. But a mother connotes nurture. A mother's one that doesn't just have children, she nurtures children. And we talk about Mother's Day, just because you're a mom, just because somebody's a mom out here, doesn't mean they're entitled to praise doesn't mean they're entitled to recognition. Mothers are those that are praised. 
Mothers are those that nurture their children. Just like there can be a whole bunch of daddies, baby daddies out here, but not all daddies are fathers. A woman that feareth the Lord, a mother, she shall be praised. So there's lots of moms, but the numbers of mothers today are getting fewer and fewer. And we need to thank God for the mothers who not only serve and honor their husbands, but also not just have, but nurture their children. It's amazing how people just think because there's something, they're entitled to something today. If you're gay, you're entitled to special privileges. Uh, if you're black, you're entitled to victimhood and reparation. If you're white, you're entitled to uh, 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 second class nowadays. Or you're entitled to guilt. If you're a mom, you're entitled to praise. If you abort your baby, you're entitled to victimhood. If you commit suicide, like the mayor of Hickory did this past week, you're entitled to have people feel sorry for you. It's amazing. Entitlement, entitlement, entitlement. A mom isn't entitled to anything. But a mother is one that can be praised. for One, one for whom we can thank God. Especially those mothers who will give of their time and energies to, especially in this day and time, to teach their children in the home. Some of this garbage that uh, uh, professes itself to be public education nowadays is not just deceptive anymore, it's dangerous. I mean, we've got a local high school over here in the county school system where the principal is so incompetent that he doesn't know what to do about the fact that there's students staging fights so they can post them on Facebook and kids are getting bullied and beat up in the lunchroom by planned fights and all he can say is we've got to get a committee together to figure out what to do. Sane society, an idiot like that wouldn't have a job. That's the kind of people running our schools. Praise God for mothers who won't subject their children to that kind of incompetence. And that incompetence starts at the highest levels of government and goes all the way down. That fool that was fired this last week from the FBI should have been fired a long time ago. That, that nonsense that he spewed out of his mouth and his testimony was more than enough justification to fire him that very day. Incompetence, confusion, foolishness. A people that turns its back on God is foolish. The world system is foolish. It'll meet its end just like it did before the flood with Cain and his descendants. But praise God, amidst all of that, there are those that fear God and there are mothers who nurture their children, who care about a godly seed, who care about God's witness even in the darkest of days. And there's... Those of us that would say, you know, Satan's attacking families today through their children, and he is, but he always has. In these genealogies, there are mothers whose children didn't follow God and who were sorrowed by it, but yet they remained faithful. There are fathers who had children that turned their back on God, and yet they remained faithful. None of us are unique. There's nothing new under the sun, and that's why these things ought to be a source of warning, and a source of hope and comfort of the Scriptures. So, there's a lot we could talk about not having, who's not here today. 
who's not with us today. But praise God for what we do have. And I know that this church body, every woman in here today, except for those that are single, uh, every married woman in here today um, uh, is a mother that we can praise God for. Every one of them. Praise God. Every one of them. Thank, thank you, Lord, for that. What a blessing. Anyway, I've rambled enough. Um, let's go back and look at some genealogy here. We have Noah. Remember, Noah lived after the flood 350 years. He died two years before Abraham was born. We talked about Shem, who was a priest of the Most High God. I believe Shem was Melchizedek. He lived until Abraham was 150 years old. Shem had a son, Arphaxed. Remember Luke's genealogy? We had a father-in-law coming here, Canaan, the 13th from Adam in Shem's line. Uh, a type of Christ, one that was cursed because of what went on. In Genesis chapter... Uh, um, <coughs> what was that? Genesis chapter 9. Yet blessed, a type of Christ, cursed, a curse that brings blessing. Thirteenth on, from Adam on Ham's side was Nimrod, a type of Antichrist. Very interesting. After our Faxid, we had Selah. Actually, this goes right here. And after Selah, we had Eber. And this is where we stopped last time in this genealogy. This word Eber is where we get the word Hebrew. It's directly connected to the word Hebrew which emphasizes a wandering people, and it also connotes a language. Okay? This man, Eber, was obviously very important in this genealogy of God's faithful, because in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, as uh, we get into the generations of the sons of Noah, and those born after the flood, it says the sons of Japheth, uh, I'm sorry, not Genesis 10 to 1021, after it uh, traces the sons of Japheth and of Ham, it says, uh, unto Shem also the father of all the children of Eber. So the children of Eber are um, important. That word Eber is related to their wandering as opposed to those who dwelt in cities and turned away from God. And it points to their language. I believe the children of Eber were those that spoke a language that continued or continued what was spoken before the Tower of Babel. What was spoken before the Tower of Babel didn't stop. It continued and then God confounded it and it wasn't just by itself anymore. It was a one amongst a whole bunch of languages. So I believe the original language continued amongst a confounding of languages. All languages can be traced back linguistically to a single language. There are similarities that uh, prove a common ancestor, just like there is in human genealogy, things that confirm the testimony of the Bible. Um, this man's name, is, like I said, is from where we get the word Hebrew. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 13, that uh, when Lot was taken captive by those kings of Canaan, and it was told Abraham, it said, and there came one that escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. That means he was a descendant of Eber. 
and he spoke Hebrew. This Eber is very interesting because he does not die until Jacob is 19 years old. He actually outlives Abraham by four years. By four years. He is the oldest man born after the flood. Is this man here, Eber. The oldest man born after the flood. He lived to be 464 years old. Before the flood, 969. Okay? Now we see ages quickly dropping. This is about half. We're told that Eber had two sons. One's name was Joktan, the other was Peleg. Peleg is in the genealogy to Abraham. And he was named Peleg, it says, because in his days the earth was divided. If you go to Genesis chapter 11, we're told in verse 17 that Eber lived after he, that, that he lived four and thirty years and begat Peleg, and Eber lived after he begat Peleg four hundred and thirty years and begat sons and daughters. And then Peleg lived thirty years and begat Ru. We're told elsewhere in chapter 10, verse 25, that uh, um, Peleg was so named because in his days the earth was divided. This is a reference to the division, I believe, that took place at the Tower of Babel. It was in Peleg's days that the languages were confounded, the earth was divided, and men were scattered to the far corners of the earth. Now that could co have coincided with not just a linguistic scattering, but there could have been judgment involved that evoked the separation or the gradual separation of the continents. I believe that could be what's referred to here. All of that could have happened in the flood. Landscapes change over years uh, in, in major ways. So there's no way we could say that the way the earth looks today is exactly the way it looked like even 2,000 or 3,000 years ago. Shorelines erode, earthquakes cause land masses to move. Humans mess with stuff. There are parks and things that look different today than they did when I was a kid. Just the land itself. But in Peleg's day, the earth was divided. That means that the Tower of Babel happened about 108 years after the flood. So about 100 years, a little over 100 years later, men who should have known God and should have been taught the things of God and were turned away from God and that spirit of Cain came back and they began to gather themselves and say, we will sit in the place of God. Motivated by Satan, who attempted that himself. And build a time heaven. We will be unified. The cry of the hour was globalism, unity. And then God scattered them in the days of Peleg. And when He scattered them, they carried this spirit of Babel, which means confusion, to the ends of the earth and what was one people became instantly a sea of nations. It's interesting to see that after the flood, the ages of men drastically increase or decrease. By the days of Eber, they've decreased by 50%. And then it gets down to about 20% of what the ages were before the flood. And it pretty much stays there. Is that right? My number's there sometimes. We go from 464 years with Eber to 239 years 
to 239, down to 230, and then down to Abraham, which was 175. Is that correct? 175. So these ages are drastically decreasing. That's what the spirit of Babylon does. It affects men physically. When we turn away from God, it affects us physically. There are physical ailments associated with lifestyles that are bent on rebellion against God. And then I'm told that I'm supposed to have health insurance and my tax dollars are to fund these lifestyles that create health problems because they're in rebellion against God. Sheer profundity. After Peleg, he has a son named Ru. This man Ru died when Abraham was 18 years old. His son Sarag died when Abraham was 41 years old. And then we have Nahor. Nahor died 11 years before Abraham was born. So his grandfather was dead before he was born. And then it says that Nahor begat Terah. If you look at Genesis chapter 11... Verse 26, And Terah lived 70 years and begat Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. So at 70 years old, Terah began having sons. Now that doesn't mean that Abraham was the oldest. In fact, he couldn't have been. When we look at the genealogies and the dates, Terah would have been 205 years old when Abram was born. Just because Abraham's name is first doesn't mean he's the oldest. We saw that with Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth is called the eldest there in Genesis, but yet Shem is always listed first. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So at 70 years old, he began having children. He died the year Abraham... He wasn't 205 years old when Abraham was born. He was 205 the year that Abraham entered Canaan. That would have been 1921 B.C. Abraham entered Canaan in 1921 B.C. He was 75 years old. And Terah died when he was um, 205 years old. Turn over to Joshua chapter 24. Terah would have been 130 when Abraham was born. Sixty years separated him from his oldest brother. Joshua 24. Now this line we've been tracing is a faithful line. I believe it's a line that preserved the language that was spoken before Babel. Some form of Hebrew. I believe it's a line that reflects God's faithful witness amongst the spirit of Babel. But yet even this faithful line was affected by this world system. Look at Joshua 24. Verse 2. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood. That word flood is a reference to the Euphrates River. Abraham came from the other side. They dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, 
and the father of Nahor. Nahor was ter- uh, Abraham's brother, and it's from Nahor that Laban and Rebekah and Leah and Rachel are descended. Even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. So by the days of Terah, even this godly line was turning away from the truth and serving other gods. It was being affected. It was being corrupted. Therefore, God stepped in and called Abraham out of his homeland and said, from you, I won't just build a line. I'll build a nation. And in that nation, all nations will be blessed. God moves from preserving a godly line to preserving a godly nation in a sea of nations. See, God's going to get His way. Regardless, God's going to get His way. When God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot was told to flee into the mountains with his family. And Lot said, no, please don't make me go up there. There's nothing up there. There's a little city up here called Zoar. Let me go there. And the angel said, fine, go. Well, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Lot went to Zoar, but he didn't stay. He quickly went to the mountains anyway. He figured out real quick that God was going to get his way. Why did Lot's daughters commit incest with their father? Is it because they were wicked and bent on doing something that was wrong? No, they actually thought there was no one left on the planet. They thought when that fire rained down from heaven that God destroyed everyone. They said, there's not a man left on the earth to father children. We're going to have to lay with our father. They thought God had killed everybody. Of course, He hadn't. But God always gets His way. When the godly line was compromised, God stepped in and did something. We're told that... Let me erase this here. We're told that Terah had three sons. Nahor... Haran and Abram. Haran died before his father. Haran had a son named Lot. Died before his father in the land of his nativity. Abram would have been, uh, Terah would have been 130 when Abram was born. And it's from Abraham, that God decides to build a nation. And of course, these lines are intertwined because Nahor is the father of um, Bethuel, who's the father of Laban and Rebekah. And of course, Laban was the father of Isaac, I mean, uh, Leah and Rachel. So these things are intertwined. But as we're moving down this genealogy, uh, it's interesting because here in Genesis chapter. Let's see, where am I at? Genesis chapter 11. We get to verse 27 as we're introduced to Abraham. Now these are the generations of Terah. The book of Genesis is interesting because we see this phrase um, ten times. These are the generations. In Hebrew, it's the word toledoth. The toledoth. This is how it's... This is how Genesis is divided ten times. It's a book of generations. First generation, this one we see regarding Terah, 
is the sixth of ten. The first, this is the book of the generations, is in chapter 2, verse 4, the generations of the heavens and the earth. Then we have the Toledoth of Adam, his generations, chapter 5. The Toledoth of Noah, chapter 6. Chapter 10, verse 1, the genera- this is the book of the generations of Sham, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 11, verse 10, the generation specifically of Shem, the godly line after the flood. And now here, these are the generations of Terah. In chapter 25, we see the generations of Ishmael. These family trees are given to show us the root of the problem we have in the Middle East today. Abraham trying to, or Sarah convincing Abraham to take matters into his own hands to fulfill God's promise, to try to do God's job for him. And look at what we've got today. Ishmael is the father of the Arab peoples. And we have problems today resulting from someone, even a faithful man, trying to take matters into his own hands. Chapter 25, verse 19, we have the Toledoth of the generations of Isaac. We also have the generations of Esau in verse chapter 36. And then finally, the last one, the last Toledoth given is the generation of Jacob. And by Jacob, the nation is fully, um, the promise of the nation is fully solidified. And God moves from a line to a nation. And that nation is Israel today. Um, so these, these things are important. When, when a phrase repeats itself time and time again, that tells us how we ought to divide the book. How we ought to study the book. Why are these things being emphasized? Genealogies are there for a reason. They're to give us a witness and a testimony. And we ought to pay attention lest we fail to learn the lessons of history. Sad commentary on the human race is that the only thing men ever learn from history is that men never learn from history. It's a sad commentary. Let's look at Abraham's genealogy for a minute because it's kind of interesting. Turn to Genesis chapter 20 verse 12. And again, we're tracing God's faithful witness amidst the world system. Remember, Abraham went down to Abimelech and he was afraid because his wife was so beautiful. And so he told her to say, you know, you're my sister. And we often are very critical of Abraham and how he lied and deceived it's not exactly true. Look at Genesis 20.12. When he explains himself to Abimelech, Abimelech thought to take her into his home and God stopped him. He's questioned Abraham, why would you tell me this? And Abraham said, yet indeed she, that is Sarah, is my sister. She's not the daughter of my father. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Abraham didn't lie. Sarah was his sister. She was the daughter of his father, but not the daughter of his mother. Okay? Abraham didn't lie. Abraham just didn't volunteer all the information. We could learn a lesson from that. There's people out there today that think virtue means you've got to volunteer every detail of information when somebody asks you a question. And as a result, that tends towards some serious foolishness on the mission field when it comes to laboring in closed countries, when it comes to laboring in areas where people are hostile to the things of God. Honesty is not volunteering information. 
Honesty is answering truthfully. We need to make sure that we answer truthfully. But we don't owe it to people to explain ourselves. Jesus himself didn't believe that he needed to explain himself. In a sense, Jesus did what Abraham did here with Sarah. Turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, I'm going to start at verse 19. Jesus is amidst the religious leaders there. And uh, He's just gone into the temple and cleared it out there in Jerusalem. And the witness is hostile. Verse 18, it says, Then the Jews answered and said unto Him, What signs show thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Who gives you the right to come in here and clear out this temple? And look at what Jesus said. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus spoke 100% truth. Did He destroy the Jewish temple? No, it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, or remodeling. Herod had been working on remodeling it 46 years. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? So they thought He was talking about the literal temple. But, verse 21, he spake of the temple of his body. He was talking about his body. Not the temple that was built by Ezra and Nehemiah and, and, and the Jews that came back with Zerubbabel after the captivity and being remodeled by Harry. He was talking about his body. But everybody there thought he was talking about the building. Did he see the need to explain himself? No, in fact, the next verse says that his disciples didn't realize he was talking about his body until after he rose from the dead. So he didn't even need to explain himself to his disciples. Jesus could have easily said, well, I'm not talking about this temple. I'm talking about my body. He didn't see the need to do that. He spoke the truth, and he didn't volunteer any additional information because their hearts weren't interested in the truth. There's an important lesson there, and I think Abraham gets unjustly criticized sometimes because he was speaking truth. Now, as far as his fear about losing his wife, that's what, what he needs to be criticized for, of anything. But we ought to tread carefully because we do a lot of things and don't do a lot of things because of our fear of man. It's not his deceit that was the problem, it was his fear of man. But he spoke the truth. He said, she was my sister, she's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. So this is an interesting thing here. We have one of two things that could be the case it's possible that Terah's wife, who fathered his sons, died and he had a second wife. And she had a daughter named Sarah. And as a result, Abraham married his stepsister or half-sister. But there's a far more likely explanation if we look at some other Scripture. Turn back to Genesis 11, verse 29. Haran, their brother, died in the land of his nativity. And Abram, let's look at verse 28 of chapter 11. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of, of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abraham and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah the daughter of Haran, 
the father of Milcah and the father of Iscah. But Sarah was barren, she had no child. So what we learn here is that Abraham and his brother both took wives. Abraham's was Sarah. And Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the daughter of his dead brother. Okay? So this considerably older brother died, and Nahor, Abraham's brother, took one of his daughters, his niece, to be his wife. Okay? So we're told the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, who was daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. So we know there was another daughter named Iscah. Nahor took one of his fatherless daughters to be a wife. But there was another daughter out here. And this woman's, this Iscah's never mentioned anywhere else in the Scriptures. The word Iscah literally means to watch or to wait. It's funny that in the very next verse we're told that Sarah was barren, she had no child. What does a mother do that's barren, that has no child? She watches and she waits if God will give her a child. The word Sarai means a princess. A princess. One that's elevated, in a sense, in her husband's eyes. Jewish tradition says that this Iska was Sarah. And Sarai was just another name. Sarai, Iska, instead of one that referenced her watching and waiting, was given the name Sarai because when she was taken by Abram, who was a mighty man, as a wife, she was suddenly a princess. One who was barren was a princess. And that Iska is just another name for Sarah. So in that sense, Terah was her, I mean, uh, Abraham's father was her father. It was a grandfather. And in the scriptures, a father and a grandfather are both fathers. My grandfather's my father. My great grandfather's my father. So his wife Sarah was his niece, but he, she had the same father he did. It was just her grandfather. So. It's interesting how two brothers cared enough about their dead brother and his orphaned daughters, they took them as wives. And there would have been significant age difference here. There was, um, uh, uh, Abraham would have been born when Terah was a hundred and, uh, let me see here in my notes, 130 years old. That would have been 60 years after his older brother was born. So obviously there would have been some vast age differences. But Abram took a wife, Sarah, who I believe was the sister of Nahor's wife, both daughters of Haran. They had a brother named Lot, so Sarah would have been Lot's brother. I mean, Lot's sister. Lot's sister. And then we have Abraham come down. We have Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac's the son of promise. Ishmael is the father of the Arab peoples. Nahor marries this Milcah. They have a son named Bethuel. Bethuel has a son named Laban and a daughter named Rebekah. 
she marries Isaac. Laban has Leah and Rachel. And then Rebekah and Isaac have Jacob and Esau. Jacob marries these two wives of Laban and we have the twelve tribes of Israel. So these family, this family tree is intertwined. And it's intertwined not through one man, but it's intertwined back through Terah all the way to Shem, all the way back to Adam, the twelve tribes of Israel. Nahor and Abraham married Haran's fatherless daughters. Their nieces, sisters of Lot, they would have been closer in age. Abram, Sarah, and Lot then enter Canaan in 1921 B.C., 427 years after the flood. We're told that verse 31 of Genesis 11, And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan, and they came unto Haran and dwelt there. So where Haran died, they named a place after him. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Haran was still on the other side of the Euphrates. Now the Lord had said, so God had already told Abraham, Unto him, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land which I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee. Not a line, not a son, a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curseth thee and in thee shall all the families, all the families that have been scattered at Babel, now speak in different languages, in Abraham, all these families will be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. Lot believed the promise. Lot went with him. He wanted to be a part of it. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in Haran and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sychem, unto the plain of Moreh. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And we know the seed being referred to is not the seed of Ishmael because the same promise given to Abraham is later affirmed in Isaac. To thy seed will I give all these countries. And then it's confirmed in Jacob. To his seed would the Lord give the land. This place where Abram first built an altar in the land of Canaan is not a place where Jewish people live today. It's in Shechem. There is a town called Shechem. Joseph is buried there. His tomb is there. But Shechem 
Today is area in the Palestinian West Bank. Jews are not allowed in there. That's Jewish land that's been usurped and stolen by Palestinians. Don't believe the hype in the media. First place, in fact, the first three places that Abraham built altars unto God in the land of Canaan were in the West Bank. Shechem, Bethel, and Hebron. All Area A Palestinian territory. If you're Jewish and you get caught in there today, they'll kill you. And then the person that kills you will get a square named after them. It's just the way it is. So 427 years after the flood, God begins to raise up a nation in a sea of nations. The spirit of Babel endures, but so does God's faithful witness. Here's a couple of interesting facts. There were ten generations before the flood from Adam to Noah. You had Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahilahel, uh, Jared, Enoch, the seventh from Adam who was translated. To be translated means you're taken from one place, you're picked up and you're transported and you're stuck in another place. Enoch was translated, and he was translated to another place, just like the church will be. Prior to the rise of Antichrist, prior to the tribulation, translated, taken out and stuck somewhere else in the presence of the Lord. We, ought not, we're not, we shouldn't be sitting around looking for Antichrist. We don't need to be sitting around looking for Antichrist, looking for the one world government. We as the church are told to be looking for Christ to appear. We, we don't need to, it's, it's, it's nice to be informed about things and have an understanding of the times, that's reputable. But let's don't let that keep us from looking for Christ each day. That's what Enoch did. Enoch was the father of Lamech. I mean Methuselah, Methuselah, Lamech, Lamech, Noah. Ten generations. There were ten generations after the flood in the godly line. Shem, Arphaxad. Um, I know these by heart, but I just, it just uh, slipped my mind. Shem, Arphaxad, Selah, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Sereg, Nahor, Terah, Abraham. Ten generations. Of these ten generations that precede Abraham after the flood, seven of them were alive in Abraham's lifetime. We think there's these long periods of time and these men didn't know each other. How in the world could this witness have been preserved? How in the world could Moses have known anything? All of this knowledge must have been lost. Seven of the generations from the flood to Abraham were alive in his day. There were only three who were dead. Noah, two years before he died. Peleg, remember in Peleg, his days the earth was divided. And then his grandfather... Nahor were dead. The rest of them were alive. Three of these ten generations remained alive when Isaac was born. When Isaac was born in 1896 B.C., after Abraham had gone into the land of Canaan, 25 years later, Shem, Selah, and Eber were still alive. One of these generations remained after Jacob was born. Eber died when he was 19 years old and actually outlived Abraham. So there was a testimony. There was a witness. It was God's plan all along to bring up a nation. Even in all these nations that were scattered in these genealogies, it was for a reason. They were divided for a reason. They were scattered for a reason. And their boundaries were limited for a reason. 
Turn to Deuteronomy 32. Moses makes an interesting statement here to the children of Israel, exhorting them to follow God and to keep the covenant at Mount Sinai because it's a good law. It's a law that's supposed to teach other nations. We could solve a lot of problems in this country if we just applied the civil laws from the Torah. Not talking about religious or the ceremonial laws. I'm not even talking about the dietary laws. If we applied the civil codes, we could fix a lot of problems. You wouldn't have this garbage going on over at Bunker Hill High School if we listened and looked at the law given to Israel as a government. And I'm not going to apologize for that. I know what the law said about homosexuals, sodomites, and I know what it says. I'm not apologizing for that. God's law is good. It shows us our sin. It can't save us, but it drives us to Christ. And if you won't be driven to Christ, you'll perish. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of Adam. When did God, when did God separate the sons of Adam? He did it at Babel. He did it at Babel. At Babel, God separated them. Prior to that, men separated themselves. They went out from the presence of the Lord. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. God didn't send him out. God divided or separated the sons of Adam at Babel. What did He do when He did that? He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. When God separated them, when Babel was scattered, the world system went across the earth, it was limited. There's only so much it can do. It was limited, and it was, the bounds were set according to the number of the children of Israel that God would raise up. The nations are limited in their power, in their authority, in their boundaries according to God's plan for the children of Israel. The children of Israel at the heart. And those, these nations today, even Nazi Germany, can't go past those bounds that God has set. You know, the Nazis think they were successful. And yes, lots of Jewish people perished. Supernatural rage authorized by God. Go read the Torah. Written to a people if they turn their back on God. Supernatural rage authorized by God and carried out by the devil. Many perished. It must needs have been that offenses came, but woe unto, them, to him, to, woe unto them by whom they came, as Jesus said concerning Judas. It's better that Hitler and them guys had never been born than what awaits them. But out of what was a terrible, terrible judgment, there was a boundary that could only go so far. And the greatest revenge today against Hitler and the Nazis is grandchildren and the modern state of Israel. There's boundaries set that men couldn't cross. People have persecuted Jews throughout history, but there's boundaries that are set and they can't be crossed. And yet God's people endure. Same can be said of the church. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of Adam at Babel, the same Spirit that falls there in Revelation 14, He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. In these days we're reading about in Revelation, Babylon will fall, but Israel will be restored. For the Lord's portion is His people, 
Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. We do very foolishly to forget that fact when we interpret the Scriptures. That's a key point. We as the church are not a new Israel. We have a part to play in this plan. Jacob himself is tied to the old genealogical lines. God's witness was through a line, a godly seed. Now, in a sea of nations after the Tower of Babel, amidst the world system that ultimately culminates and is doomed there in Revelation 14.8, God purposes to raise up an earthly nation as a witness in a sea of scattered nations. Not a line in a maze of genealogical lines, but a nation amidst a sea of nations. Is Israel faithful in this? At times. More so than anything else, it's by Israel that we have the Word of God and can know the true God. They are chiefly blessed. Their advantage is because by them were the oracles of God given to all men. Every author of every book in the Scriptures is Jewish. Even Luke. Luke was not a Gentile just because he had a Gentile name. Petros, Peter, is a Gentile name. It's a Greek name. We wouldn't say he was not Jewish. Paul says in Romans, the advantage of the Jew. What advantage has the Jew? Chiefly unto them were given the oracles of God, the Scriptures. So in, in ways, they were faithful. But they also turned their back away from God to the world system that they weren't to be a part of. They failed. What does God do? Does He reject them? Does He come up with a new plan? No. They'll be restored. What does He do? He raises up a heavenly nation. A church in the midst of their failure to provoke them to jealousy that they might return and fulfill their destiny. Look at a couple verses in Romans. We're an important part of that. We're an important part of what God's going to do with Israel. We sent to provoke them to jealousy. The very first church was a Jewish church. The very first pastors, the very first missionaries. All the New Testament writers were all Jewish. And boy, did they provoke their own people to jealousy. Israel rejected the opportunity to be restored at the preaching of Stephen. And as a result, the gospel went to the Gentiles. And now we have Gentiles around the world, simple people, some without any education whatsoever. Simple people that have more knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures than even the greatest Jewish rabbi. And boy, what does that do? It provokes them to jealousy. How do you know more about my Scriptures than I do? Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 19. Paul says, But I say, did not Israel know? Why are they surprised by this? For Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation will I anger you. Years ago, my ancestors, my Gentile ancestors, worshipped idols. But today, my family follows the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Talk about a provocatory statement to a Jewish person. It's true. It's exactly what God said would happen if Israel turned its back. God's witness is going to happen nonetheless. And then in chapter 7, verse 11, look what Paul says. I say then, have they stumbled, has Israel stumbled that she should fall? Should she, will she fall like Babylon? God forbid. 
There's another way to say that in modern slang English, but I'm not going to say it. God forbid. Strong. Strong way of saying no. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. Why? For to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing them of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Have they stumbled that they would fall? No. Through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. God built a church. And that church exists to provoke them to jealousy as it carries out the mission that was originally given to Israel. And as a result of that provoking to jealousy, the nation itself will one day be full again. You see, God, through Abraham, purposed to raise up an earthly nation to be a witness amongst a sea of nations. When that nation ultimately failed, He rose up a heavenly people to provoke that nation to jealousy. And because of that nation, earthly nation's failure, salvation comes to the Gentile. The prophecy made to uh, Japheth and uh, uh, or the prophecy made to Shem concerning, in, uh, 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 concerning the Messiah and to Abraham and thee all the nations shall be blessed is fulfilled in the church. In the church there, there will be people or witnesses in the kingdom of God from every single Gentile nation that's ever existed. It says people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not the entire nations, but representatives from every nation will be in the kingdom of God. And the prophecies made to Shem, Noah's sons, made back in the Garden of Eden concerning the seed of the woman, made to Abraham about blessing all nations, will be fulfilled. It was always God's plan. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. What does Peter say to the church here? <coughs> But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a heavenly nation as opposed to Israel is sown in the earth, the church is sown in heaven, a peculiar people, people that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in the past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. My friends, we're a, a holy nation, risen up to provoke Israel to jealousy, that they might be restored. But we're strangers and pilgrims. That's what we are. Why do we live as if we're tied to this earth in the same way that Nimrod and his people were tied to Babel and Cain and his people were tied to the cities? Why? Why do we live as if we're tied to this earth? We're strangers and pilgrims. The word Eber, the word Hebrew means a stranger, a pilgrim, a wanderer, as opposed to the world system that just settled down in the earth. We're no different than Abraham. We ought to be like the faith of those in Hebrews 11 who looked for a city whose builder was God. Not an earthly, not an earthly kingdom, but a city whose maker and builder is God. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul, having your conversation honest amongst the Gentiles. If we're living as strangers and pilgrims and we're not tied to this earth, 
a lot of those fleshly lusts that war against our soul will go away quite easily. If we start looking at the things of this world as transitory and start embracing our identity as pilgrims and strangers, then a lot of this temptation will go away. It won't be so hard to fight anymore. We're a heavenly people. God's plan, God's purpose. <clears throat> That's why it's important for any great commission ministry, any great commission effort, by a local church, at some point or in some way ought to involve ministry to the people of Israel, to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they are a key part of God's plan. They will be restored. They, in many ways, are enemies of the gospel, as Paul says, but beloved for the election's sake. And we are given to provoke them to jealousy. It's our witness that provokes them. Paul said, I labor to provoke them not to just to jealousy, but to emulation. That ought to be our desire. We ought to love them because of the covenants God made concerning them. And we need to be careful when we criticize Israel and its rejection of God because the church has committed the exact same sins and we've done it with the benefit of God's complete and total revelation. Most Jews have never even read a New Testament. And we're going to criticize them for turning their back on God and for rejecting Christ. We've got a New Testament and we reject Christ when we fashion Him in our mind to serve our own lust and pleasures like the Jesus of American churchianity. Who are we to criticize the Jewish people? The American church has the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament and has taken Him out and fashioned Him into an idol. Far worse than the idols of some false religions. It's a shame when I listened to some of that testimony that was given the other day, that FBI director, when he talked, it reminded me a lot of preachers I hear from the pulpit, just tickling ears. That pseudo-spirituality, that nice guy, deceptive spirit, that foolishness, that incompetence. I mean, who are we to criticize the people of Israel? We sit there and listen to that garbage. We embrace it. And we fashion Jesus into something He's not. And we've got the New Testament at our fingertips. We ought to be ashamed of ourselves. It's of the Lord's mercies that Israel's not consumed because He doesn't change. He said in the book of Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore you sons of Israel are not consumed. Guess what? The Lord changes not, therefore the church is not consumed. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not because we're good people, not because we've been commissioned with taking over the world and ushering in a kingdom, but because it doesn't change. Praise God for that. Abraham enters Canaan when he's 75 years old. The first three places he builds altars unto God and are claimed. First three patches of land are in the West Bank today. Isaac is born in 1896 B.C. when Abraham's 100 years old. Five years later, he is weaned at a feast in 1891, and that's when the mocking, that's when the sojourning of the people of Israel begins, when Esau mocks. 1856 B.C., Isaac marries Rebekah when he's 40 years old. When he's 60, Abraham's still alive. Jacob is born, 1836 B.C., Jacob and Esau knew their grandfather Abraham till they were 15 years old. 
1716 B.C., Isaac dies at 180 years old, only 10 years before Jacob and his sons go down into Egypt. So there wasn't this long period of time. Isaac dies not seeing the promise, looking for a promise afar off by faith, just like Abraham. Ten years later, Jacob and his sons go down into Egypt. That means that... Was it wasn't 17 years that... Uh, how long was Joseph in prison? Isaac would have been around when Joseph was sold into slavery and would have been privy to that. Jacob... In 1759 B.C. goes to Laban to find a wife. He was a mama's boy. Stayed at home. Lazy. Entitlement. Just like Jacob was like the millennial generation today. God still used him. He would have been 77 years old when he finally got up off his rear end and out from under his mother and went and found him a wife. 77 years old. 20 years later, when he's 97 years old, he returns to Canaan with his family. Thirty-three years later, 1706 B.C., he goes to Egypt. And 17 years later, when he's 147 years old, he dies in 1689 B.C. Jacob goes down into Egypt. 215 years later, in 1491 B.C., the people of Israel, the nation that God raised up down there in isolation in Egypt, came out with God's mighty hand, and entered into the land of Canaan. 1491 B.C. 215 years later. So, Israel sojourned in a strange land for 400 years, but they were only in Egypt 215 years. Let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture real quick. Genesis 15, 13. There's no contradiction here, only apparent. Genesis 15, 13 says, God's making a promise unto Abraham, and He said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and shall afflict them four hundred years. Abraham's told his seed would be in a strange land in which they are afflicted, and in which they're forced to serve others for 400 years. We say, well, Israel must have been in Egypt for 400 years, serving the pharaohs. No. Isaac was afflicted when he was five years old in a land that wasn't his when his older brother mocked him at a feast. Isaac and Jacob had to move around. They were afflicted by those in the land. Their, their wells were buried and, 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 and uh, filled in and they constantly had to move and there were constant problems and they were never able to claim something as their own. Jacob and his, his uh, uh, sons were afflicted by famine and the people of the land and had to go down to Egypt. The period of sojourning or afflicting, wandering without a home was 400 years. Genesis 21.8 When did this 400 year period begin? And the child, this is Isaac, grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Ishmael was 19 years old. He was mocking his brother. Afflicting. That's a strong word, mocking. It means it was probably physical. 
Not just words, not just sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. There's a physical mocking here. This would have been when Isaac was five years old. It's not a strange thing in ancient Near Eastern culture for a child to be nursed until he's five years old. I look all, I go up on the roof in Kathmandu when we're living over there to do exercise, and I look over and see kids standing on their two feet getting breastfed on the roof of the, of the house next, next, next door. That's just what people do. Uh, kids are nursed a lot longer in other cultures than they are here. Um, in some third world cultures, it's actually better for them. It's actually better. They can't get that nourishment anywhere else. But Isaac would have been five years old. Uh, this would have been 1891 B.C. 400 years later, they came out of that affliction. They were no longer strangers. They went into Canaan and they took it and it was their own. Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. <clears throat> now the sojourning, that means the wandering, living, staying, squatting on a land that's not theirs. The sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. Okay, so what is this? 430 years. When did the sojourning begin? Did it begin when Jacob and his sons went to Egypt? Or did it begin when Abraham himself went down into Canaan? What this passage is saying here now, the sojourning of the children of Israel, which children of Israel? There were different lines there. The ones that dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. That Who dwelt in Egypt is on a positive, defining which line of children. The sojourning began with Abraham when he came into Canaan and left his home. 1491 B.C. They came out of the land of Canaan. That's 430 years. That word Israel there is referring to more than just the man Jacob. It's referring to the promise. This agrees with what Paul says in Galatians 3.17. What Paul says. Galatians 3.17 And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ when Abraham was 75 years old and entered the land of Canaan God made a covenant. That covenant which was before, confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Sinai, which was the same year, just a couple of months after Israel left Egypt, was 430 years after the promise. And the promise was given in 1921 B.C. And so there was a 430 year period that goes from the promise to the exodus, there's a 400-year period that goes from the, the sojourning or the affliction of Abraham's seed to the Exodus. And that affliction started with his seed when Isaac was weaned and Ishmael mocked. So we're all the way down to the days of Jacob and the Exodus. Did you know that from creation to the death of Moses, which was in the wilderness before Israel entered into the land of Canaan after their 40 years of wandering because they didn't believe God. From 
That would have been in creation, 4004 B.C. If we believe the Bible, 1451 B.C. would have been entering into Canaan. We have a period of um, 2,553 years. So from creation to Israel's entrance into Canaan is longer than Jesus Christ to our present day. Longer than that. A lot happened. 2,553 years. Now, we often think, how in the world could Moses have known all this information? Of course, God, he wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God revealed it to him. But how in the world could he have known this? He just must have made it up. There weren't historical records. If they were, they would have been lost. And how in the world could Moses have known all this stuff? Did you know if you go back and look at the genealogies and the overlappings of life of lives, that from Adam to Moses, there were only six links needed between Adam and Moses. Adam and Methuselah were alive together for 243 years. Methuselah and Shem were alive together for 98 years. Shem was alive when Isaac was around for 50 years. Isaac was alive for 40 years when Levi was around. Levi was alive for 27 years when Amram was around. And Amram was alive for 62 years when Moses is around. So there were only five generational links between creation and Moses. That's it. How hard is that to pass down accurate information? That's the same as the generational links between me and my great-great-great-grandfather who was a soldier in the Civil War. We have all kinds of history that we believe without question from records that were passed down even before our founding fathers here in America and people don't question it at all. Did you know that between me and George Washington... There's only seven generational links. Or seven generations. Less links than that. If I went back and studied how many years I was alive when my grandfather was alive and so on, but there's only seven generations. If I go all the way back to my great-great-great-grandfather who was a soldier in Robert E. Lee's army, that means he was contemporaneous with Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee's father was contemporaneous with George Washington. He was... Uh, one of his, uh, one of his, he was one of his staff members in the Revolutionary War. Why do we think it's crazy that Moses could have had information going all the way back to Adam? It was less generational links that exist between me and the Revolutionary War, and yet there's lots of records that can be trusted. Um, there's, uh, I, I believe it's the Jewish historian Josephus that talks about that the flood, the flood would have happened in 2348 B.C. I think it was 1656 years after creation. Jewish tradition says that the year before the flood, Methuselah, remember Methuselah died the year of the flood. His name was prophetic. When he dies, there'll be judgment. It says that the year before the flood, Methuselah, Noah, and Shem erected two pillars. Two great pillars. One was made of stone, and one was made of brick. 
And that on these pillars, they inscribed the history and the discoveries of the world from Adam down to their day, knowing that God was going to destroy the world and wanting to leave a record or a testimony. And Josephus says that these pillars were still standing in Moses' day. Still standing. These records from before the flood that were written down were still standing and he would have had access to what was written thereupon. But uh, it's no amazing feat that these records were passed down and they were accurate. We have records today passed down much longer from, in terms of generations, not in terms of years, but in terms of generations that we can consider accurate. Why is it fantastic to think that Bible, the Bible can't be true? We believe it's true because it was the Word of God and God declares it to be true. But we don't even, you don't even have to uh, have that faith to, have, uh, to see that... I don't even know what I'm trying to say here. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, but it's not a fantastic thing that these things could have been preserved and been accurate if that makes any sense. 1451 B.C., I'm almost done. Israel enters into Canaan. A nation in a sea of nations has been raised up to be a standard or a witness against the world system that began at Babel. What happened or that was resurrected at Babel after the flood. When Israel entered in Canaan, that was 790 years after God scattered the nations. And when it entered Canaan, the nation was born that would be a witness. A witness amidst a sea of nations. Ever since that time, there have been many attempts to resurrect the unity, the globalism of the spirit of Babel throughout the centuries. Many attempts. And when this happens, it always seems to result in the persecution or the attempt to exterminate God's people Israel. Always. Look at Revelation 17. Revelation 17, 9 through 11. We looked at this a little while ago when we were looking at the beast, the seven heads and ten horns. This beast is shown again in chapter 17. The world system, the religious arm of the world system is riding atop the beast. The beast uses the world system to gain power and then he turns upon her and destroys her. Here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen. This is in John's, when John was alive in the first century, into the first century. Of those seven kings, five were fallen. One is... And the other is not yet come, and when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven and goeth into perdition. I'm not going to get into all of that. But we talked about the seven heads of the beast representing the seven nations throughout history, world nations that were raised up, that reflected the spirit of Babylon, that were used by Satan to try to exterminate Israel. By John's day, five of them were fallen. The very first one was Egypt. Egypt was the spirit of Babylon. World domination, unity, globalism. It attempted to exterminate the descendants of Jacob. It was fallen. Assyria, the second world kingdom 
that attempted to exterminate Israel. It was fallen in John's day. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the first of the four Gentile kingdoms that Daniel saw. Before Daniel's day, there were two. Babylon, Persia, Greece, all of those were fallen in John's day. Five are fallen. It says one is, in John's day, the Roman Empire was the spirit of Babylon, unity, globalism of that day, and it was a persecutor of God's people. We know that one is five are fallen, according in John's from John's perspective, one is and the other is not yet come. The revised Roman Empire, the Titian Federation that Daniel speaks about, is not yet come. That's the globalism of today, the pieces of which are coming together. And it too will be an instrument of persecuting God's people, the world system. And then the eighth, of course, is the beast himself. That's the culmination of Babylon. Everything culminates in Satan's superman. But like Cain and his descendants, it falls. It falls in an instant, broken without hand. The angel announces Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen. Daniel, this, a picture of this is revealed to Daniel and it's described in a little bit different way. Actually, it's revealed to one of these Gentile kings, Nebuchadnezzar himself. And Daniel interprets it. Turn to Daniel chapter 2. We've looked at this passage many times. I'm going to end with this. Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has that dream of that great image. The different metals representing. That image is the world system. It takes different forms. Gold, silver, brass, iron, iron and clay. It takes different forms, but it's one system. And then Daniel, the king can't even remember his dreams, and none of the sorcerers, pagan priests, none of those that represent the spiritual arm of the world system can even begin to understand what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. He can't remember it, but God reveals it to Daniel, and Daniel tells him what he dreamed. Verse 31, Thou, O king, sawest and beheld a great image. This great image, whose brightness was ex- excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. That's the world system. This image's head was of fine gold, the breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, and his feet a part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till till that a stone was cut without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. And then later as Daniel is giving an interpretation of this dream, and in the days of these kings, that's that last manifestation of globalism, the ten nation federation, iron and clay out of which Antichrist arises, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up His kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people like the world systems are, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, 
and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. What this angel announces in Revelation 14 wasn't anything new. It was announced right here to Nebuchadnezzar long before Christ was born. And just as that dream and its interpretation were certain, so is certain this announcement that is yet future. And so certain is the fall of the world system. A stone cut without hands becomes a mighty mountain. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And the world system falls. What began long ago comes to an end. The Genesis record. The Genesis record is attacked almost more than any other part of Scripture by the world, by Satan. Why does Satan attack the book of Genesis so much? Genesis is attacked more than Revelation, even though Revelation spells his doom. Why does Satan hate the Genesis record? All these things we've traced and looked at in Genesis. Why is it so attacked? Why is it so hated by the Spirit of Antichrist, the world system. The reason why is because it unmasks them. It truly does, Genesis truly does to Satan and the world system what the FBI tried to do to politicians and stuff uh, that's been revealed about unmasking people and getting into their private business when they had no warrant and no right to. The Genesis record does unmask. It unmasks who Satan is, and it betrays His Spirit. The book of Genesis unmasks the world system. We ought not be deceived because it reveals exactly who it is. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. Genesis and Revelation are inextricably tied together. You can't have one without the other. And one reveals the other. What ends in Revelation began in Genesis comes full circle. God does exactly what He says He's going to do. And this snapshot of judgment and announcement is made. And that pronouncement of doom is upon a world system that got its hands dirty long before the... But in the end, it'll be made right. Later, we're told that this is the patience and faith of the saints. God's judgment upon the world system is the patience and faith of the saints. There's a third angelic messenger in this snapshot of judgment we have here in Revelation 14, this victory campaign. Verses 9 through 12, we have another announcement. We've had an announcement of doom against the world system. And now we're going to have an announcement of doom against those who follow the last form of the world system. The last form of that world system is the Antichrist and his kingdom. Not only is that system doomed, but those who follow it. Those who receive that mark. When you receive the mark, in those days, it's an act of worship. And there is no escape. So these novels and stuff that are written about the tribulation period by these authors that have characters in them that get the mark, but they, feel they, 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 they become sorry and for whatever reason they follow the Lord and God doesn't judge them. That's not biblical. You take the mark, you're damned. There's no escape. Think about the book of Hebrews and what it says in chapter 6 and 10. 
And we like to look at that and forget that it's written to Jewish people. And to forget that prophetically, it's written to Jews during the tribulation period who are supposed to be witnesses. We forget that doctrinal context and we start looking at chapter 6 and chapter 10, start thinking you can lose your salvation. When Paul preaches to the church something very different, something very clear about the permanency and the perseverance of the saints. Look at what's being written. You know these things. And be careful lest you fall into perdition. These are Jewish people that know the truth after the church is gone, and yet they're struggling with falling back into perdition, which is receiving the mark. You can taste these things. You take that mark, you're damned. There's no help for you. An act of worship. Doom against those that uh, receive this mark and that follow the last form of that world system. By God's grace and mercy, the church won't be here. The Scriptures teach that. The types and antitypes throughout Scripture. The New Testament's very clear in a lot of places, including Jesus' own words. We're not looking for Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus the Christ. We ought to be preaching these things to warn those who will be left behind lest they fall into perdition and follow that world system in its last form and are damned forever. There's some interesting things we learn about the nature of eternal damnation in this third announcement that I went into. Um, and uh, uh, we'll do that next week. All right, let's, let's go ahead and pray and we'll conclude for today. I hope this was interesting to you, uh, just a tracing of God's record, some genealogical gems. I don't expect you to remember all this stuff, uh, but I hope what it does do is cause you to slow down a little bit when you read the Scriptures and, and take note of the wellspring of wisdom and knowledge that can be found therein. Don't give the Bible a surface-level reading. You know, I've been practicing, getting ready for a summer in Latin America, reading the New Testament in Spanish. I started with Matthew. I'm all the way up almost to the end of the book of Mark now reading the New Testament in Spanish. And I'm forced to slow down. I can't just skim it or I'm not going to have a clue what's being said. But when I slow down, I see things that God's Word is saying that I never saw before. We don't do that in our own native tongue because we can understand it. We just skim through. Maybe we ought to slow down as if it is another language and see what's there um, for the Lord to teach us. So I hope these messages have at least encouraged you to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for another Sunday, another Lord's Day to gather and hear what Your Word has to say. We marvel at the accuracy of Your Word. We marvel at the authority and the power of Your Word. We marvel that the promise you make are sure and steadfast and that You've had a plan all along and You will see it through until the end. You may change Your way, God, but You never change Your mind. When you change your way, it's because you're merciful and not willing for any to perish. You see all that's happening today, but you wait, God. You don't wait because you're incompetent or unable like so many of our government leaders, but because you're merciful. But you will see your plan through to the end. The world system is doomed. But praise God, um, you will fulfill your promises to Israel and you will fulfill your promises to the church. Help us to be what we've been called to be, strangers and pilgrims a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen generation that we might shine forth your praises in a dark, dark world. Bless our food, Lord, and our time of fellowship. And we thank, we're thankful for all the godly mothers in this room today, Lord, who care about more than themselves, Lord, who care more about rights and entitlements, Lord. They care about 
your word about their husbands, about their, their children, and about being a faithful witness in times of darkness, just like these uh, men and women we've traced in these genealogical records. We praise you for that, Lord, and don't take it for granted. In Jesus' name, I, say, I pray all these things, and for his sake, amen.